We've been going through the Holy History. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. Good morning. So nothing nothing like uh, reverencing the election will get us excited about a message, right? You excited? Uh, I voted uh, this last week, and I ho- do hope that you vote. If you need any encouragement or any insight, um, yeah, it, it, we love to talk about these things, so come and talk to us about it. What I would like for you to do right now, though, is think of a hero of yours. Think of a hero. You know, how some people say, well that's, well, that's one of my heroes. Think of a hero. And when you've got it, turn to somebody next to you and just whisper who that hero is to you. Go ahead, and I'll give you a few seconds. Some of y'all are finding this difficult, and that's okay. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't hear my name. I know you're speaking quietly, but I did not hear my name. Uh, I've got a few heroes for sure. Um, and for our little kids, if they're in here, uh, they might think of like superheroes, all right? Uh, which I'm excited that they went upstairs. It means I get to be PG-13, so that's awesome. I'm not, don't worry. It's a very family-friendly uh, message. But, uh, but your, your hero, I wonder if there's a common trait that we can think about in our heroes. I want to mention one of mine. And I've mentioned uh, this person before, and I believe it was a long time ago. It was several, several years ago. But one of mine is a guy by the name of Eric Little. I don't know if you've heard that name before. His life was made famous in a movie in 1981 called Chariots of Fire. But I love this guy, and I love his life. And I want to tell you a little bit about it as we uh, head into the life of David. And the reason we're going to talk about David is if you've been paying attention, Daryl's been going through the holy history. And we've come to the place where we're at David's life. Now, I'm going to tell you right now up front that to try to have one message over the life of David is ridiculous. He takes up like 60-something chapters in the Word of God. It's a lot of stuff there. But I do want to highlight something. But before I do, I want to talk about somebody who was born in 1902. I don't know when your hero was born, but this guy was born in 1902, and he was born in China. The reason he was born in China, because Eric Little doesn't sound like a Chinese name, and it's not. It's a British name. He's Scottish, but his parents were missionaries in China, and that's where he was born. He didn't stay there very long. He, He was raised there a little bit as a kid, but then he moved back, and he went to the University of Edinburgh, and this guy loved the Lord, and he was super fast. I mean, really, really, really fast. I want everybody to think of somebody fast. Do you have somebody fast in your head? All right, how many of you thought of an Olympic sprinter? A couple, who did you think of? Yeah, Usain Bolt, fastest guy that's ever, ever ran the 100 meters. Anybody know his fastest 100 meters? It's 9.58 seconds, okay? 9.58 seconds. And for those of you who are not quite sure what that means, 100 meters is longer than a football field because a football field is 100 yards. So 100 meters is about 110 yards, give or take, okay? So that would be if somebody was standing on the goal line and ran all the way through a football field and touched the goal post at the end of the end zone in less than 10 seconds. I want you to think about that for a moment. Like that's super fast. 
super fast. And any of you that follow sports, you know that a long time ago, they didn't run quite that fast. It's like we keep getting bigger, stronger, faster, right? Well, Eric Little ran the 100 meters in about 10 seconds, okay? Now, they didn't have the technology that we have today, but people think it was about 10.0 seconds. Now, if you don't quite understand, that's really fast, okay? Even if it's 100 years ago. None of y'all, none of us, I'll put myself in this group, can run 100 meters in 10 seconds. 10 seconds is fast. It's super, super fast. I mean, at the time, in 1924, he would have won the gold medal in the Olympics in Paris. I said would have because he didn't run the 100 meters. And that's why I want to talk to you about him. And this is why he's one of my heroes. This guy loved the Lord. He was born from missionary parents and would himself become a missionary later in his life. Well, leading up to the 1924 Olympics, he was known for being very fast, probably the fastest person in Britain, probably the fastest person in the world. In fact, in 1924 at the Olympics, the 100 meters was run and won by a British guy by the name of Harold Abrams, or Abraham, sorry, Abrahams. And Eric Little beat him a few months before the Olympics. So the guy that ultimately won the gold medal, Eric Little had already beaten. But months leading up to the Olympics, the schedule was released just like they do now. And it was shown that the 100 meters Uh, the prelims, the heats leading up to the final were going to be run on Sunday. Now, I know that we, some of us look at the, you know, the commandments in in differently, and I'm not here to talk about how we should uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, which is the fourth commandment. But for Eric Little, to him, Sunday was the Lord's day. And so when he saw the schedule that the prelims for the 100 meters was on Sunday, it was a very easy decision. He told his committee, the Olympic committee, he's like, I'm not going to run those races. And he got some flack for that, as you can imagine. I want you to imagine that you are a country's hero, that you're expected to run in. And and just like today, the 100 meters is the race. Whoever wins that race is the fastest person in the world. So how do you think his countrymen felt that he was not going to run that race? They were upset. Many of them were. Many of them didn't understand. And many of them were Christians, but they, they didn't understand why he was making that decision. But he had the confidence to tell all of his countrymen, all of his teammates, I'm going to dedicate Sunday to the Lord, even if it means I can't run the race that I'm supposed to run. And so he started right then to train for the 400 meters. Now, do y'all know that Usain Bolt doesn't run the 400 meters? Did y'all know that? Because people don't run the 100 and the 400. There are some people that run the one and the two, like Usain Bolt. There are some people that run the two and the four, like Michael Johnson did. But people never run the one and the four. It's just crazy. They're just completely different races. One's 100 meters, one's 400 meters all the way around the track. But he started training for it. His best time before he got there, I think was like 49.6 seconds, which was modest. Again, a whole lot faster than you and I could ever do it. But in the world, that was pretty good. Good enough to probably run the Olympics, but nobody expected him to place. So the morning came that he was going to run and he qualified to be in the finals, but he was in the outside lane. Now, I don't know if there's anybody that follows track, but y'all know that that when they're, you have to go around the track, that if you're on the outside, that's a farther distance. So how do they make up for that? You start in front of everybody, don't you? You know, it's kind of like a staggered. Well, the problem with starting on the outside is that you can't see anybody running with you until the final turn. And so if you're not running fast on the final turn, all of a sudden, all these people pass you. The fastest runners usually run right in the middle. If you look at any Usain Bolt's races, he's always in the fourth or the fifth lane, right in the middle. 
But Eric Little, again, this isn't his race. It's the 400 meters, not the 100. He's running on the outside. Well, before the race, he's handed a piece of paper. And on it, it says, it's written in the old book. Man, whew, it's written in the old book. He that honors me, I will honor. And he's, he's holding on to this piece of paper. And he's so encouraged by it because up until that point, only he and his coach thought that he was making the right decision. Nobody else believed that he was making the right decision. So he's sitting here and he's getting ready for this race. He's got that piece of paper and he's read it and he feels encouraged. The gun goes off and he runs a race only how he knows how to run it. You see, traditional thought was on the 400 meters, you would run really fast the first 200 and you just try to coast. You just try to survive the last 200. That's how people run it. And in fact, those of you who ever watched Michael Johnson, Baylor Bear, by the way, when he would run those races, that's exactly what he did. He would run so fast. He'd be so far, just ahead of everybody. And then he would just coast to try to get to the end because it's such a difficult race. Well, again, Eric Little is a 100 meter guy. He's not a 400 guy. So when the gun goes off, he just starts running. And he runs as fast as he possibly can. In fact, he runs so fast that everybody that's watching is like, he's making a huge mistake because he's going to burn out. The coaches, the trainers, everybody watching is like, Eric Little's making a mistake. He's out in front of everybody, sure, but he's on the last lane. He can't see anybody. So he's just running. He really can't calibrate to anybody. He's just running. And then something strange happens. The second 200, he runs faster. Whew. In the first, and as he's running, he does this weird thing, man. He cocks his head back, and his mouth is agape, like he can't get enough air. And he does this weird thing, like he starts flailing his arms just to get to the finish line. And he says later, when he's asked about it, he says, um, he says, yeah, the first 200 meters, I ran my fastest. And the second 200 meters, God help me run faster. And it's a true story. And man, it's so cool because he finished with 47.6 seconds. Two seconds faster than he's ever run his whole life. Faster than anybody had ever run in the Olympics ever to that point. He had set a record and people didn't know how he did it. But he ran with the joy of the Lord. And he, he had such confidence. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk about the life of David and about faith-filled confidence versus selfish conceit. And it seems like a weird transition to go from Eric Little to David, but hopefully this will make sense because in the life of David, we see somebody that, that with faith is going to have confidence to do amazing things. But that when he starts making decisions, based on his own pride or without faith, this sort of conceit and the disaster that it brings. So we're gonna read in a few places. We're gonna try to juggle a few things at once. We're not gonna be comprehensive at all, okay? So if you would, the first place we're gonna turn, we're gonna turn to 1 Samuel 17. And you guys know this story, all right? You've heard this many times, David versus who? Goliath. Yeah, we've heard this story a lot. I'm not going to read the entire thing. We're going to jump into an important spot, but here's what you need to know leading up to it, is that Goliath, he's a Philistine, and then we've got David, Israelite. We had the Philistines and the Israelites, and they were sitting on two opposite hills with a valley in between them. 
and they were wanting to go to war. Well, David is the youngest of a bunch of brothers. He's not at war. He's at home tending sheep. His three oldest brothers were at, the, uh, at this battle getting ready to fight with Saul, the first king, who you heard Pastor Darrell talk a lot about recently. David goes and he's bringing food to, uh, to the people and he's got to bring back word to his father, Jesse, about his three older brothers. Well, what he finds is shocking to David. You see, each day this towering man, Goliath, would come out and would curse at the Israelites. By the way, how tall was he? We think he was about nine feet, nine inches, give or take. Big guy, okay? He would make Shaq look small, all right? Huge guy. Wore armor that was about 125 pounds. Had a spear that the head was about 15 pounds. I mean, this guy was, he was like a tank almost, all right? He had another person standing in front of him with a shield and he would come out and he would challenge the Israelites and say, okay, if anybody beats me, We'll, we'll be your subjects. But if I beat one of your, if I beat your champion, then y'all will be our subjects. And everybody is scared. Nobody knows what to do. David shows up and he is, uh, <laughs> he, hears, he hears this and he responds very differently. So I want us to look at faith-filled confidence in David. And I want you to see two things, okay? That when we have faith-filled confidence, it brings wisdom and victory faith-filled confidence, when you and I have confidence that's rooted in our faith and our belief of God, that it brings about wisdom and victory. So we're gonna jump in to part of it here. We're gonna be in 1 Samuel 17 and we're gonna start with verse 32. It may pop up there, it may not, but that's okay. You can just listen. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart. Now, we could probably stop right there and just talk about how bold that is. David not in the army, some shepherd boy, younger brother is running up. And who is he talking to? The king. He says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Okay. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned to me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Yahweh, the, probably says the Lord, but that's Yahweh who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to, said to David, go and Yahweh be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. This is verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. So he was small, young, glowing with health and handsome and he despised him. Verse 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Verse 45, 
Listen to what David said, his response. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give your carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, David's probably like this. I can't even reach nine feet, nine inches, okay? Think of a basketball goal halfway up the net. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that Yahweh saves. For the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you all into our hands. Verse 48, and as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David quickly ran toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, we've heard this story so much that sometimes I don't know if we've really have put our mindset here into what happened. But I want you to imagine someone who's maybe 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And I want you to think of the largest human you've ever seen. And I want you to double that human in size. Okay. And he's covered with armor. He has somebody else carrying his shield in front of him. And then we have another young kid, looks like a teenager who doesn't have any armor. And what does he do? What is David, how does David respond? He runs what? Toward him. Can you imagine that sight? The whole, all, both armies are watching and I'm sure everybody had the exact same thought. Ah, that's a dead man right there. Oh, man, I, I don't know. You know, they're doing one of these things, right? It's like, I don't think I can watch. He's, it's gonna be quick. And you know what? It was, but not in the way they thought it was. What gave him that confidence? Well, notice how he responded. His offense, David's offense was not that he was, this man talking about his family or his king, what was the offense that riled David up so much? It was that he was trying to defile Yahweh, his God. And he's like, let today everyone know that there is a God in Israel. I mean, his faith came from, I mean, his confidence came from his faith. And specifically, I wanna highlight two things, wisdom. Where is some wisdom? Because it seems have y'all seen that quote that's been going around online? It says, courage is doing something that you know will hurt and so is stupidity and that's why life is hard. Have y'all seen that quote? It's true, right? You know, it's true. And so you're looking at David, you're like, well, is that courageous or just stupid and foolish? No, there was some wisdom here too though, okay? I want you to note some wisdom. Let's look back at verse 38. Saul tries to dress David in his own tunic, put a coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. But what did David do? He said, I, I, no, I got to take these off. I'm not used to this. Now that's a big deal. He's about to go face a man who's covered in armor, a tank of a human being, this basically walking tree. And he says, take off the armor. Now that's foolish. Or is it? This is a faith-filled person who's drawing on his experiences. And he says, the Lord has saved me from lion and bear. He's giving, he's giving uh, tribute to the Lord there, understanding that it's because of what the Lord has done. That the Lord has trained him, has gotten him ready, that he can defend himself against those animals. So therefore he can be successful here if 
he takes off all of this stuff that he's not used to. Now, for you and I, there are some times where we're asked to do things that the world may seem, the world may think is foolish and may be, it seems foolish, but we have got to put our trust, not in our ability, but in what the Lord has brought us through. That's wisdom. That's not foolishness. That's not, you know, jumping out and hoping the Lord will catch you. That was based off of an experience that God had already brought him through. That's wisdom. When you and I have faith filled confidence, we have wisdom. And then of course, victory. And we already read that when we have sort of confidence that's rooted in faith, we will be victorious in this life or in the life to come. David was victorious over a giant, over someone who's experienced in battle. But you know what's interesting? I wonder how many times Goliath had actually gone to battle with a quick young man who is used to fighting lions and bears. Think about that. Goliath was experienced, but probably not for that fight. So it's interesting how we always use the term David and Goliath, meaning the little man against the big man. But really, perhaps in this scenario, God had put it out perfectly that the one that was actually the most skilled, the most experienced, the one who was the most lethal was really, in fact, David because of how he had led him up to that point. He had, given him, he had given him the tools, he had given him the experience. And so all David had to do was trust in that. Faith-filled confidence gives us wisdom. God draws on our experiences and he puts us in positions to be successful. And faith-filled confidence brings victory, just like it did with David. Well, we don't, I'm not gonna say this church, but often in churches, we're not very honest about David. David is a very flawed person very flawed. We think of him as our champion. Upstairs, we do the coloring pages about David and Goliath, and that's usually where we stop on the coloring because the rest of the story, there's some highlights, but there's some definite lowlights. And I want to look at this. I want to to contrast faith-filled confidence with selfish conceit. And for that, I want to turn to 2 Samuel 11. And again, you guys know this story, but I want us to hold this these stories that maybe we know, we've read them a ton of times, but we're applying them to ourselves and we're thinking about, okay, the type of, of confidence I have, is it, is it rooted in faith or is this really conceit rooted in my own selfishness, okay? So with this, we are in chapter 11. We're gonna read just the first uh, five verses and then another part. And for this, as we, just to, again, to lay out the, con- the, the contrast here, we've got faith-filled confidence that brings about wisdom, and victory, faith-filled confidence, confidence not in our own abilities, but rooted in the promises of God, rooted in what God has done in our lives, our faith in, in, in our God, that that can bring us wisdom and victory. And then we're gonna contrast that with a selfish conceit. And what does selfish conceit bring about? Foolishness and defeat. Faith-filled confidence, wisdom, and victory. Selfish conceit, foolishness, and defeat. Let's read. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, is this an episode of faith-filled confidence or selfish conceit? Obviously, selfish conceit. And selfish conceit breeds foolishness. There's a lot of indicators here that David acted foolishly and that David was acting um, from a very selfish, conceited position. Let's look at it very closely. In the springtime, at a time when kings go after war, David sent someone else. So there's our first indicator that is he, is he acting from faith or from an own, uh, his own selfish desires? He's staying at home when kings, he's a king, are going out to do battle on behalf of their nation, he sent someone else. There's indicator number one. Number two, verse two, one evening David got up from his bed. Stop right there. Men, you and I know this. Sometimes in the middle of the night is when we are in the most, uh, under the most attack from the enemy in all sorts of ways. It can be lust, as is the case here. It can be anxiety. It can be worry. It can be depression. It can be despair. In the middle of the night, we're under attack. And ladies, you may be as well. I'm just speaking from my own experience and from what the word of God says. And by the way, David had wives, right? Yes, he had many. So what is he doing waking up in the middle of the night? If he needs comfort, he has a wife. Multiple wives, actually. But instead, what does he do? He gets up in the middle of the night and he starts walking around the roof of the palace. Another indication of a sort of selfish conceit. What is he doing? He's not coming before the Lord. He's not finding comfort in the arms of a woman that is his wife. He's walking around the roof. And the evening. Now, why is that? Why is that interesting? Well, because many times, if they would bathe, people would bathe in the evening as to what conceal themselves. So here we have a king who should have been off to war, or uh, maybe at least asleep, or in the arms of his wife. No, he's walking around, putting himself in a position where something bad can happen. That's the definition of foolishness, by the way putting yourself in a bad position where bad things can happen. And then he sees a very beautiful woman. And then here here we see the conceit come in. He finds out that this woman is married and it doesn't stop him at all. Can you imagine the gall? I mean, some people may read this story and say, wow, David is very confident. It didn't matter to him at all. He just took what wasn't his. That's selfish conceit. It's not rooted in faith. It's not rooted in wisdom. It is foolish. And because of that, it leads to defeat. We'll jump ahead to uh, verse seven. No, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse seven. Listen to this. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite. That's the woman's husband. 
with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Listen, selfish conceit brings about foolishness and it brings about defeat or calamity. And we see this, if you continue reading the story, I'll just summarize it. But his own son, Absalom, kills one of his other sons, then does exactly what the prophet told David would happen. He takes his father's wives and in broad daylight does terrible things. David, the king, has got to run away. He has to flee because he's afraid that Absalom could put him to an end. His whole kingdom is turned upside down. And it goes back to one night when he thought that he could get away with whatever he wanted to get away with. Instead of being at war, instead of staying in bed, he saw something that was not his, he took it. He killed that woman's husband and he brought calamity. He brought defeat, destruction, death on his own household. I hope you see the major differences between those two episodes in the life of David. One, he's young. People think very little of him, but he's got confidence rooted in his God. And because of that, he was wise and he was victorious because that's what faith-filled confidence brings us. It brings us wisdom and it brings us victory. And then we see this other episode, this selfishness, this conceit that he thinks he can do whatever he wants because of the position he has. God had given him all of these things. And what did he do with it? He was foolish and it brought defeat because that's what that selfish conceit brings. So you think about it in your own life because we're faced with challenges all the time, okay? If you're rooted in faith, God's gonna give you confidence to do amazing things things that most people may think, there's no way they can do that. They're not gonna get, they they can't, they don't have the ability, the skill, the resources to do it, but he's gonna give you the wisdom and he's gonna give you victory. But you have to be careful because many times when we have all of these things, when God blesses us with relationships, with jobs, with all of these things, we somehow forget about the former things and we start thinking, oh, I've gotten here. And as a result, we think that we can do these things that we know we probably shouldn't. And as a result, we act foolishly and we bring defeat. So I hope you're thinking about your own life, all right? Now, David's life doesn't end there. He is restored to power. And we see this, um, we see some, some really good things toward the end of his life, but we see some bad things too. But I, I, wanna, I wanna look at another, another episode here as we finish our time and about how we see that, that David was ultimately confident in the Lord, okay? He was given a promise. Uh, if we turn to uh, 11 again, uh, hold on, Second Samuel, no, no, wait, I just skipped ahead. Yeah, Second Samuel 7, 11 is what I meant to say. Second Samuel 7, verse 11, it's kind of halfway through the verse. If I remember right, yes. So David is thinking about building a temple and God's like, no, that's not for you to build. But he does give him a promise. 
He says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as long, I'm sorry, will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, it doesn't mean a physical house. He means like his family line and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It's an amazing promise, okay? It's called the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David, to David that his line, his family would be on the throne forever. Did David believe it? Did he have that faith-filled confidence that God was gonna stay true to that promise? The answer is yes. How do we know that? One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 110. We read about this in Luke today. This is the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. Read about it several places, namely Luke and Matthew. But look at Psalm 110. This is a psalm that David wrote. Now remember, the question I gave to you was, was David, did he have confidence that the Lord would keep his promise? Listen to this. This is a psalm that David wrote. Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then it changes. It says the Lord, not Yahweh, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. Now, Jesus says this in Luke and he also says it in Matthew. He has a question. He says, who is David talking to? Because the idea is that this Psalm is really saying that David does believe that the Lord will stay true to his promise. He's confident because of his faith that his line will go on forever because that was a promise that was made to him by God. And he's saying, yes, the Lord says to my Lord, but what's so weird, what's so interesting is, is if David is talking about a descendant of his, a son, a grandson, a great-grandson, a great-great-grandson, why does he call him Lord? Did you see that when it was up there? I'll read it again. Your Bible say the Lord says to my Lord, but the first Lord is in all caps. That's, that's Yahweh, all right? That's the Tetragrammaton. Daryl's talked a lot about that. That is, that is God's name. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai. He says to my Lord. So David is talking about the Messiah to come that's gonna be in his line, his physical line, that God's gonna keep his promises but he says it in such a peculiar way. He didn't say the Lord says to my son, which by the way, they knew the Messiah would be called the son of David. Y'all have heard that term a lot in the New Testament. He didn't say that. He didn't say the Lord Yahweh will say to my descendant, 
will say to the future king. He says, the Lord will say to my Lord. And as San Juan and I were having a good discussion at the end of it, he said, so did David realize that, that his descendant would be special, would be different? And the answer is yes. He was confident not only in the promise that God made to him, but that it was something more, that this one to come would be his Lord indeed. And how could that be except that the one to come, the Messiah, would be the God-man, God incarnate, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And see, that's what faith-filled confidence will get you. Not only will it give you wisdom and victory, but it will give you hope in the promises of God ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why is that important for you, you and I? Again, we're contrasting the life of David, right? That's what we're talking about. With faith-filled confidence, he took down a giant. He had the wisdom to know how to fight him, and he was given a victory by the Lord. Then we saw that with selfish conceit, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing things he shouldn't do, taking what wasn't his. And as a result, it brought defeat, calamity, death, all of these terrible things. But we see here in this Psalm that he wrote that ultimately because of his faith, he was confident, not only in the promises of God generally, but specifically in the one to come. And I'm asking you, where do you fall? Because you and I, if we are rooted in our faith, can be confident that God keeps his promises. The most important one of which is the salvation to come. The most important of which to know that even after this life, there's something to look forward to. I need to tell you about the end of Eric Little's life. So you don't see this part in the movie which I highly recommend the movie. The movie's fantastic. 1981, Picture of the Year, Chariots of Fire. Good soundtrack, great movie. Watch it if you can. I almost played a clip, but I don't want that to be the focal point, so I didn't. But here's the end of Eric Little's life. He won the gold medal in the 400, a race he was not supposed to run, okay? I mean, just an inspiring race. He got the gold medal. He ran for a few more races after that in 1925, but he left because he had, and he always knew he was going to, to go back to China. In fact, kind of a cool little trivia question, he's technically the first Chinese person ever to win a gold medal because he was born in China. Pretty cool. So he's actually like Chinese and Scottish. He's a Scottish Chinese or Chinese Scot, however you want to put it. But he went back to China, all right? And he, he took up that mantle of his father and he became a missionary. And he was there all the way until the war broke out. And in 1943, the Japanese, um, they invaded China. In 1943, he was put in a concentration camp with many other people. And while he was there, he would, he would inspire the little kids. He would put them in routines and, and they, would, they would play sports. They would read the word. They would do all these things because they realized that if, if they had routine and this is true even today for your own kids. If your kids have routine, it gives them a sort of a, a safety. And a, like there's something that they can rely on even when the whole world is falling apart. His health declined very rapidly. And six months before um, paratroopers from the United States liberated the concentration camp, Eric Little died. Very poor health. He had a brain tumor and he was starving. Now, that doesn't sound like a victory to me, but it is. 
Because where is Eric Little now? And that's, that's, that's where my confidence, that's where your confidence has got to be. It's got to be rooted in the promises of God. And yeah, he was fast and it's awesome. And again, watch the movie. It's very cool. There's, for a Hollywood movie in 1980, probably wouldn't be made today, but there's a really cool reference to scripture. And, and there's this part where he's flinging his head back and he's talking to his sister, who's also going to be a missionary. And she doesn't understand why he's running. He goes, God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. How cool is that, right? But that was small potatoes. He was destined to go back to China because that's where he wanted to be because he wanted to spread the gospel. And he was victorious in the end because in a land that's a very dark communist land where there's very little things about Christians or Christianity anywhere, do you know that there is a monument in China to Eric Little and what he did. You won't find anything like that in that country, but his mark was left and there is generations of Chinese and of Scots who know of him and his story and his testimony. And as we said earlier, he's with Jesus right now. So ultimately his faith-filled confidence did bring him victory. So as we close, um, where are you, where are I? Do we have confidence that's rooted in our faith in the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that he's gonna keep his promises? Or are we driven by our own selfish pursuits that sometimes give us this false confidence, this cockiness that really only leads to foolishness and defeat? So I hope that you've got confidence in the Lord, not in your own ability, but by him, through him, you and I can do great things. We can be wise and we can be victorious. And I hope, that, uh, I hope that that is true for you. We can be confident that God's gonna keep his promises. And the ultimate great promise is what? What did Jesus say? All those who believe, we have eternal life, right? Yeah, death is gonna come, but life awaits us. An eternal life of bliss with God forever. My faith has got to give me confidence to go through the small problems every day, the anxiety in the night, the problems with finances or, or, or many of us in here, illness. We can have confidence, not because we know we're going to live forever, not because we have all the money in the world. No, we've got confidence because our God is good. He's a keeper of his promises. And we will have victory in this life or we for sure will have victory in the next, the one to come. Amen? Amen. Um, Use this time to just come before the Lord and ask yourself that basic question. Do I have faith that's leading me to be confident in the Lord or am I driven by my own selfish desires that brings about that false confidence? You know, do you have faith-filled confidence or not? And if you don't, let's correct that. Come before the Lord, ask for his help. Ask for his spirit to come in you, to inspire you, to motivate you, to guide you, so that you and I can make wise decisions so that we can lead to victory. Amen.